0: Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network.org. Org.
2: I like the way you do. Whoa, the way you took it so slow.
3: Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, as usual, Kathy Airway. And it's a beautiful fall day. It's the best season, I think, for cooking because it's cold enough again. You can turn on the oven and there's holidays sort of around the corner. It's uh, it's crisp. It's brisk. It's lovely. So I'm so excited to be talking with a guest today. And uh, I just wanted to share a little sort of funny story about that. Um, a few nights ago, um, someone asked me who I was going to have on my show as the next guest. And, um, you know, I I think that I often forget that I, like, live in this bubble of food media, and um, not everyone does. So um, we seem to be, like, this divided nation in many ways, uh, as you know. But uh, my news feed is just filled with food news and essays on, like, culture about food and representation. And uh, it just might not look like everybody else's. So when I said... um, Nick Sharma and the person was like Oh who's that I was like What how do you not know who Nick Sharma is it's like you know he's Been like named one of the best Food bloggers by everyone And his latest his new book Is called season and it's on like the best Fall cookbook preview lists On numerous websites and so forth And like oh okay great so What does he do what's what's the Deal so I was like all Right fine I guess not everybody lives In my bubble but, um, you know, who knows? Maybe there's other food bubbles out there where they just see feeds filled with, uh, I don't know, Gordon Ramsay or somebody else at <laughs> top of their mind. But I definitely think that, you know, Nick Sharma is a very, very exciting guest. He, if you're not familiar with him, he is the author of A Brown Table. That's his blog, as well as the weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle called A Brown Kitchen, and his uh, first book, called *Season*, is just out right now from Chronicle Books. So I'm really welcome, uh, really <laughs> pleased to welcome Nick Sharma on the air. Hi. Hi, Kathy. Hey. So, <laughs> you're in uh, you're you're in home right now in San Francisco.
4: I am. Yeah, actually, Oakland. I live in Oakland, which is a couple of minutes away from uh, the city.
3: Bay Area. Got it. Um, so congrats on this new book. It's, it's your first, you. it's your baby. So it's yeah, exciting it's my first time.
4: Baby.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. It, um, yeah. so when I, okay. So when I was explaining your blog, a brown table, thinking that uh-huh. everyone in the world had heard of it before, they're like, why is it? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oops, rudely. I wish <laughs> taken back to reality <laughs> where not everyone is a foodie. Um, Anyway, um, you know they're like, oh, what? Why is it called a brown table? And I thought maybe uh, you could answer that best.
4: <laughs> or, I could, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I guess it's also a good thing uh, not to be known by everyone because um, you get to meet new people then, and you get to tell something about yourself. Yeah. So I think that's always exciting. Um, so a brown table. So a brown table is the name of my blog, and I called it a brown table because two things. The first is very literal. When when I started to photograph food for the blog, I, um, I had two wooden planks that I would put on my recycled trash can and on my regular trash can, and it would reside there, and I would photograph. And so that was the illusion of, because at that time, I think, um, well, not I think, I know that at that time, uh, wood surfaces were the surface for people to use in food photography and mm-hmm. so I said I'm going to create this illusion that I have a fancy brown t- like a br- nice like a nice brown wooden table which I didn't <laughs> um and so that was that and then uh, oh yeah and the wood planks were from my now husband's parents woodshed on a farm out in Virginia North Carolina mm-hmm. and um the second thing was more metaphorical because um I am brown because I am Indian. I was born in Bombay. And um, it was kind of a play on words, too, where um, I felt like I needed to do a bit of representation um, through my work mm-hmm. in food media. Yeah. And so that's what the other brown refers to. Wow.
3: That is so funny that you had um, not a fancy table, but you, did the trash cans get into the shot sometimes when you were trying to shoot?
4: Right. Well, yeah, they did get cropped out. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's amazing. This is like some genius photography. I should note that Nick is also the photographer as well as the author of Season. And he shoots all the wonderful photos on his blog, too. So uh, quite a feat. And also, speaking of, you know, brown skin representation, Uh your hands factor into a lot of photos. And I love
4: that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of become like my trademark yeah <laughs> my hands yeah. which is kind of funny maybe i should get them in short i don't know um <laughs> i feel like so, I've, I've heard like cele- i'm not a celebrity but i feel like celebrities do that and it's kind of funny so i always joke at home maybe i should just get my hands in short because people always seem to recognize the hands versus the face which mm-hmm. is kind of funny
3: they're, they're lovely hands
4: uh, <laughs> thank you <But> the, the, <laughs> um mm-hmm. yeah go ahead
3: oh yeah uh, i was gonna say the photography is isn't Is really really impressive and um, how do you get your hands in the photo though and get it like in focus and I can sometimes manage to get one hand in the photo with the other (laughs) hand trying desperately to focus holding on to the camera but how do you do It took a lot of
4: practice. Oh really? It took a lot of practice yeah Um, I think I mean I always wanted to have a distinct point of view with my work and since the blog is such a visual medium for people um, and I would probably say that before you actually cook, you're actually tasting and eating with your eyes. And so I figured that, you know, I had something to tell people and I wanted to do it in my own way. So the photography was going to be one one facet to that point of view. And then the writing and the food would be the other two components. Mm. Got it. Um, and I, you know, I worked as a cook for a little bit. Um, That's why I like I fell in love with cooking and I feel like there is so much beauty in the process of cooking. Yeah, I feel um, the final dish is beautiful and no doubt. I mean, that's what we want. And I feel we talk a lot about ingredients and where they come from. But like that in-between process is rarely given enough attention. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to do that in my own way on the blog, but also make it instructional because I feel sometimes I personally... um, Get lost sometimes or confused when I read a lot of instructions yeah. in a recipe. And I feel sometimes photos or a video can convey things much better if it accompanies text.
2: Yeah. And so
4: that was my goal. If I did it, then I should do it in my own way. Um, and then we'll see if people like it or not.
3: And and you do that really well in your blog. So I was really excited to get my hands on this book to see how that translates to a, a paper medium where, you know, paper is precious real estate and so forth. So yeah. <laughs> uh, How did it? It's good. I'm looking at the ground lamb and potato chops with Sambal yes. Olak. And you yeah. have this, you know, step by step vignettes of the photos. So, yeah,
4: that really helps. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not a complicated recipe by any means, but I think it just makes it so easy if you know and you can yeah. see at the same time. Uh, obviously, we can't include a video inside a book at this <laughs> stage of technology in life, but I think um, the photos kind of make it easier for people to know what's going on.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it also helps that, you know, here in this book, um, you don't have too many, like, crazy complicated things going on. I love that, you know... Your style is, it looks extremely po- professional as like the final finished dish. Oh wow, And oh, I'm sure you. a lot <laughs> of it is very, you know, very complicated, but um, I guess, you know, when you break it down, it's, it's, I love that it's, you know, just a lifetime of experimentation, really, of, of your own with flavors. Yeah,
4: yeah, I mean, I feel like one of the things when I started to cook, um, I'm, to be honest, a lazy cook. <laughs> And yeah. I need to do things quickly mm-hmm. and fast. And so I have a couple of, like, set ideas on how I should approach cooking.
2: Mm-hmm. And
4: one of them is to make it easy for me, but also for people who want to cook my food Um You can't always compromise on time. That's one thing. I feel like time is not, I mean, I think, and it's a good thing to have patience when cooking. Mm -hmm. Because it actually, I found personally, like when I was patient in cooking and waiting for things to happen, it kind of translated to the rest of my life. Where I was much more patient with people, interacting with them, my animals, my zoo at home. Um, But (laughs) with the book, I kind of wanted to, you know, I feel like home cooks... um, as home cooks, we have less time. And I wanted things to be easy. But I also want home cooks to be able to kind of just have fun in the kitchen yeah. without being intimidated. And we have this whole now, especially with globalization, this whole palette of flavors. We mm-hmm. live in a country where we have a really large and diverse immigrant population from various parts of the world. And I feel it was really, I think it. we should celebrate that. and the way And one way to do it is to go ahead and You know, drop all these chains of tradition and all these rules and go ahead and do what you want. And so I try to do that with the book and approach it from just like you're having fun in the kitchen, you're doing what you want, but you're also experimenting and learning at the same time and you're celebrating your failures and your successes.
3: Right. And you're making it up as you go along and in a very Mm -hmm. genuine way. But also, thank in your you. case, in a very delicious looking way, <laughs> much more than yeah. the average person. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, no, and I, I love that um, you write in the introduction that when you came to America with two large pieces of l- luggage um, yeah. from Bombay, Uh, you for school, but we can get to that a little later. Um, your mom decided to, to pack a slow cooker in your luggage so that you can, you know, it's a necessity, right? Because you have to like make food for yourself when you're, when you've left the nest, (laughs) if you will. Um, but you said I had no intention of only cooking Indian food once I got to America, I was ready to explore. So, um,
4: Um, yeah, I mean, so, in India, we in India pressure cooking is a huge thing because for one, um, it helps with the different altitudes that are around the country. The second is that, like you know, beans are a large component of Indian cooking, and so are lentils, mm-hmm. and so that really helps the process of cooking fast.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and then the, the third thing is with meat. Typically, meat is not so tenderized in India, so. It really helps when you pressure cook meat because it, it cooks fast again, yeah. plus the meat's also really tender to the bone. Mm. Um, and so for the style of Indian cooking, since Indian cooking really doesn't require you to cook meat, red meat rare, pressure cooking actually works. Yeah. Because you don't have to think about that process.
2: Hmm.
4: Um, and poultry, obviously, no one eats rare, so it works out really well when your chicken is, you know, like right. falling apart. Um, and so my mom, uh, when I moved to, when I was moving to Cincinnati for grad school, my mom said, you know, we've read, I got my admission packet and one of the things that came with it was this document from the Indian Students Association and pretty much every school has a students association by, run by students from different countries. Mm-hmm. That are, you know. And so one of the things on the list was the cooker, and my <laughs> parents felt compelled that I needed to take one. Granted, I had rarely used one in India. Uh-huh. And so for some reason, they thought I was magically going to become an expert when I uh, moved to America. And so I also had back then I had a fear of pressure cookers because my mom had taken out the ceiling a few times mm. when the lid, you know, it has a whistle and if the holes and the whistle get clogged. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> and so she is unfazed by that. Mm-hmm. But and said, you know what, you'll be fine. Just go with it and like live and whatever. Um and so I brought it and then in the first week I gave it away to a friend of mine who actually pressure cooked. And I said, this is yours, take it, I'm never going to use it.
3: That's so funny. Oh boy, so you've come a long way. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your, your story in, in getting into food, um, but we're going to cut to a quick little commercial and break and we'll be right back with more.
0: 100 Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their 2-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more.
3: All right, and we're back, John Moore, with Nick Sharma, whose first book is called Season Big Flavors, Beautiful Food. So, Nick, we were just talking a little Uh bit about, hey, um, so, you know, you write that you are an immigrant, and this is the food reflected from your experience um, Mm -hmm. in, you know, in America as well. But uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, I know you came. For, for graduate school studies, but not in yeah. food, in, a, in molecular no. <laughs> um, genetics? genetics. Got it.
4: Yeah. yeah so what happened
3: along <laughs> the way?
4: <laughs> a lot happened along uh-huh. the way. Um, a lot of fun and crazy stuff. Um, so one of the reasons why I moved to America was uh, because for a be- I wanted a better future. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to come out, but I also wanted to feel safe in a space when yeah. I came out. And I knew that America, from what I had read and heard, would be a good, like a safe space for me. Mm -hmm. And so when I made the move, um, you know, I got my scholarship and I came to Cincinnati, Ohio. I was at the College of Medicine studying molecular genetics. Um, I came out within my first year. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, what I I was still, you know, trying to become, there's one thing when you come out as a gay man, and I'm sure this is for every poor person. You want society to accept you, but yeah. at the same time, you're also fighting and trying to understand that you need to accept yourself. Yeah, And so I was in that phase of my life, and which had its ups and downs. And then I also had noticed at the time um, um, the defense budget was being strengthened by the country. And so money from research grants was being moved into defense. Oh, and dear. I picked up on that, and Uh I noticed a lot of my professors who were extremely successful, you know, very uh, celebrated, published, well-published scientists who have done a lot of research, had Mm -hmm. large R01 grants in millions of dollars for years, were unable to secure funding, and it was kind of frightening. And I said, if you study that much Mm. and you're unable to find funding, that is kind of a sad situation. It's also very disheartening to watch. Um, and so I said, maybe, I, you know, I'm also going through this personal like, situation right now in my life and I'm watching this happen. Maybe I need to take a break
2: mm-hmm.
4: and not pursue a Ph.D. at this point. I had passed my qualifying exam for my Ph.D. and I think I had two years left, one or two years left. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, let's take a break. And there's nothing wrong with taking a break when you're studying, uh, because you, especially for me, I just needed time. So I decided I'll walk away with a master's from the program. What if, and what if I work in science in a different atmosphere? So I went, moved to DC, got a job at Georgetown Hospital, uh, where I worked um, at the Department of Medicine doing research. And now this was actually a fun and exciting time because I was doing direct medical research, um, and I was seeing the effects on people. So I reconsidered going back to grad school. But living in DC, you're kind of bitten by the policy bug. Mm. I keep saying that, but it is true. <laughs> Everyone around you talks yeah. about politics. And so I thought I was going to live in D.C. forever. (laughs) I loved it. And um, I said, why not? Let's go back and see if you can apply what you've studied into a policy setting. And so I went to the public policy school at Georgetown. So I would work full time and then go to school in the evenings. And um, I got an MPP in public policy and specialized in health. Okay. Um, While that was happening, I realized my life was so focused around academia all the time yeah and i'm a bookworm i'm a nerd and i love i love the econometrics i love science it was fun Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
4: but i needed something different to not where this was not a part of my life Mm -hmm. and so i had been cooking for a while when i came to ohio i would go out to restaurants you know experiment experience what the mm-hmm. country had to offer me, the different cultures. And then I moved to D.C. It was a bigger city. So you had a lot more influences yeah. available. You had beautiful Ethiopian food. Um, and so these were the things I said, wow, you know, I I've also been cooking in a very different way for so long, trying to bring what I grew up with and what I'm experiencing here together. And I'd heard about blogs at that yeah. time. So I said, well, What if I? someone told me, why don't you do like a food blog? That's all the rage right now. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to tell people. And they said, just put whatever you want to. It it should be like a diary. And so I did that. I started it out as a diary with recipes occasionally and then photos. um, And I had no experience doing either. Uh, But that kind of grew into its own thing. And that's how a brown table was formed. And that was my first introduction into the world of food media.
3: Wow. And that was what year? How long ago?
4: Uh, let's see. I I want to say two thousand and eight, maybe. <laughs> I don't remember to be honest. It. It's been so long. <laughs> yeah,
3: because this has been your your life now. So it' quite a quite a few yeah. zigs and zags there, and that's fascinating. That um, yeah. you didn't have experience in photography or you know, cooking too much. Ooh, yeah, yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. Professionally, I had no experience cooking.
3: Wow. But, I mean, I, I love, you know, did you know of any food blogs at the time? I'm curious that you wanted to, like, emulate that you were like, yeah, yeah that's,
4: that's the one. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I remember uh, back then, like, we had these long incubation period for all our experiments. And one of the things I would do, I would just go and sit on my computer and sc- scroll through websites like Sever, mm-hmm. uh, Food and Wine, because they just had photos and they would draw you in. And then the other places I would look for blogs, one was uh, 101 Cookbook by Heidi yeah. Johnson. Um, and then there was another blog, and I don't think she blogs anymore, but it was a Norwegian food blog, which is beautiful. Like, I want to say atmospheric. That sounds so bougie, but um, <sighs> it was just very, like, it took your breath away. Like, it was, like, food with the environments, and, you know, like, the Morning Sunshine. It was just very beautiful.
3: Is that by Nevada um, Berg? I'm going to look that up. Okay. Anyway, go on.
4: <laughs> yeah. And so like these are some of the blogs that I would just like spend hours reading and I would get very upset when I would e- reach the end of the page. Like, I need more content. I need more content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because um, you, you get lost in someone else's mm-hmm. world and then that excite- makes you excited to go home and cook. Um, and so it was also a fun way just to kind of I said, oh, you know, I'm really enjoying this. And I, when I was talking, I had no idea about anything. Like, I still, I feel I don't know anything about HTML and coding. So, um, <laughs> but it, I'm sure you it's
3: could figure that out with your degrees.
4: <laughs> oh, I, wish. I don't know. <laughs> different, different skill set. True, but <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, it was. I think those were like really like powerful things yeah. for me uh, that kind of just made me think differently.
3: Yeah. What about any examples of sort of people speaking about their immigrant cuisines, experiences? Was there anything that sort of hit the nail for you in terms of the tone or style or, um, you know, the expression of the the food and its mixed sort of uh, influences?
4: To be honest, at that time, no. Yeah. I didn't see a lot, and I actually honestly don't remember seeing anybody talking about like being an immigrant um, or I mean, if they shared food, like if it was Indian food, um, like in my case, it was always what I read was this is how it's done in India. And right. that was kind of it. That's it. Uh, but I never saw anything that kind of merged what was going on in both. If you were somewhere in between, because I felt I was out of place also. That was the other thing in food, in the food vlogging world. For one, there were people that were born and brought up here that were talking about their experiences. And then the second experience or the stories were people who were born in India and were then sharing those stories or the countries that they came from. But no one was talking about what was going on in the intermediary stage, like someone like me who was experiencing life as it is, as it's flowing in front of him or her. And, um, And maybe there were. I just didn't read any. Yeah. Um, to the best of my knowledge. And so I felt that I kind of wanted to talk about that. I mm-hmm. felt people were already doing a really great job. of I couldn't talk about what it was to grow up in America, that was for sure. <laughs> and then I also came from a family background that wasn't very traditional in terms of an Indian sense. Yes. Um, you- and so that was like... I, should I talk about that or should I not? And then there were people who had this traditional ex- background, a lot of them, and they were talking about that. And I didn't have those experiences. So yeah. I didn't know if there was a place for me to share that. But
3: you went for it.
4: I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I felt like yeah. I had to, right? Like mm-hmm. I felt like it, it would be, I would be lying to myself or being fake if I made up something. Totally. and said, So it, it just felt disingenuous. So I went with my story.
3: Mm -hmm. I love that you write, you know, growing up, you said, you know, from a young age, this mishmash of food influences taught me that flavor and technique are highly adaptable tools that we can use to creatively explore our world. Um, You're talking about how your parents, tell me about their different culture backgrounds.
4: Yeah. So my parents had a love marriage back in the late 70s, Mm -hmm. and my mom was born and brought up in Bombay. She comes from a Roman Catholic family that's highly, like, uh, conser- not conservative anymore, but they're definitely religious. Like, uh-huh. my, I grew up not, eat, not being allowed to eat meat on Fridays okay. for the whole year.
2: Wow.
4: Uh, and that's, like, a very traditional Catholic thing. Um, I mean, a lot. I don't do it now. I'm not that particular. But uh-huh. back then, my grandmother would never let you eat, and she would call you out if you did that.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
4: or someone really close in the family, passed away the house would not be decorated for christmas or easter oh those were like those were like rules
3: yeah uh, why should you celebrate but, during that yeah
4: right <laughs> <laughs> and then um my dad was from the north he came from a very traditional conservative hindu family and he had moved to bombay for a job where he met my mom and so he came from a small town and the food, obviously, that he grew up with was vegetarian. Mm. Um, I mean, it was so conservative that I was, my dad has told me that when my grandmother lost my grandfather, whom I never met, um, she, had, she gave up. Volunteer, and it's a cultural thing in the Hindus Whoa. where you give up eating onions and garlic because it's considered to create feelings of arousal, like an aphrodisiac to right. so widows. Are not allowed to do that. So then they uh, they use um, asafoetida to get the same taste and flavor mm-hmm. in their cooking. Mm-hmm. And so they, they was so different. On the other hand, my mom's also her family was very. Um, the food that they cooked was heavily like it's heavy with meat.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
4: very coastal. Yeah. Uh, so like coconut is a large part of the diet. So it's seafood, and they also had this huge Western component because Goa was a former Portuguese colony. So that kind of falls into it. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, They had a lot of family that also lived in um, the African colony Mm -hmm. during the time of British rule. And then those family members moved to England. And so that was, again, so you had also this British influence in the type of food that they cooked. Wow. That is a mishmash. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so when they got married, and I never paid attention to it. I thought it was normal. Mm -hmm. But you would have, like... So the weekend meals were always the big meals where my mother actually cooked and she doesn't like to cook. Turned mm-hmm. uh, under the bus, but she doesn't <laughs> like to cook. And so the weekend, like she cooks really well when she does. And so the weekend meals were like a good like thing. And you would get like one food, you would get maybe like uh, some Indian, uh, some like Hindu food in there. And it was just like a really interesting, strange combination that I never thought was strange. Ah. Now thinking back, I realized, it kind of prepped me to understand how, and they didn't do it intentionally, obviously, but it's what they knew. And so they brought those elements to the table and um, in a way kind of sensitized my thinking. And I never thought twice that hey, this can go here, this can go there. If you use cardamom in a dessert, it could go in something savory. Um, mm-hmm. And so this kind of influence just entered into my lifestyle as a child. And when I moved to America, it was very natural, I feel, for me, to not think about any. I didn't have any barriers set up yeah. for me, basically, That's or so like cool. preconceived notions, mm-hmm. and so that really helped. Yeah,
3: right. There's no sort of strict, uh, I guess, formula for things when yeah. you right, and also when the results are are just what is your comfort food from blending yeah. influences. Hey, where do you go from there? Right. Um, yeah. I love how that's reflected. Do you think that you take over, take after your parents a little bit, even though you like to cook apparently more than your mom? <laughs>
4: and, <laughs> um, so my dad is a professional photographer. He's yeah. retired now. So uh, I'm sure like somehow that's, and I learned that my great grandfather also kind of toyed with cameras mm-hmm. back on his side of the family. So maybe it's in the blood. I don't know. Yeah, um, probably. But I feel, yeah, I feel like maybe I'm, a bit of their adventure, adventurousness in, or keeping the rules so relaxed when it comes to food at home,
2: mm-hmm. kind of yeah.
4: translated into my cooking. I think that's or my a, style of cooking.
3: That's a really good takeaway, um, and and I think that you know we didn't talk too much about some of the specific recipes, but I'm looking at a beautiful one right now that I think is perfect for fall. Um, and you describe it, uh, I'll quote, it says, while a bowl of warm beef stew with falling apart tender meat is comforting, there's no reason why it can't have an exciting taste. Here, is the, b- Here the beef beef bathes in an aromatic bra- bath flavored with cinnamon, garlic, and the fruity acidity of verjus, pomegranate molasses, mm-hmm. and dry white wine. This is my ode to California wine country. It's a beef stew with verjus and pomegranate molasses.
4: That sounds so good. Oh, I, lo- I love I I, I I love acidity so much, and especially when it's fruity. Mm-hmm. And this was like my perfect ode, especially in cold weather. I feel like a beef stew It's so good.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
4: I felt like in California we have so many good fresh ingredients for actually spoiled. Yes. Um And I felt this was kind of like a play where pomegranates are a large component of Indian cooking too. We yeah. also dry the seeds and we use that as a seasoning. Um, and I've used that in the book, too. But the pomegranate molasses just adds this fruity acidity. And the verjus is just such a beautiful ingredient used in Mediterranean cooking that doesn't get a lot of attention normally in books. Hmm. And so I, I really wanted to celebrate kind of like both the countries. And that's what I've tried to do in the entire book, celebrate both my home, India and America, because these are the places that shaped and influenced the way I cook.
3: That sounds really great. And... Wine country is nearby you, right?
4: You take yes, choice there.
3: <laughs> I'm so jealous. I do, yeah. Not only it's not too far. spoiled when it comes to food, but also wine. So
1: <laughs> that that's a good true. tip about
3: <laughs> Verjou. I'll have to try that. Um, well, I, I just love that, you know, as you said earlier, it's about, you know, not being afraid to explore. And, um, you know, hey, we live in a global food system. Yeah. So um, you write that, you know, it's not uncommon to see vanilla and cardamom in desserts mm-hmm. these days, side by side or one yeah. or the other. So it, would you say that um, if there is a sort of takeaway or lesson you wanted to share from this cookbook, what would, th- what would that be, Nick? <laughs> I,
4: th- I think do not be afraid. And I think that's what intimidated me when I first started to cook a little bit by myself. Mm-hmm. It's okay to fail. Yeah. And I think one of the things we really do, we've all been taught to celebrate success and everything has to work every time. It's okay if things don't work when you're experimenting. Like maybe I, you learn that, hey, these two ingredients do not really go well together in this format. Maybe I should switch it around, do something different the next time. It's okay yeah. to learn from your mistakes because honestly, I feel it's the mistakes in my life, especially in cooking, that taught me what is how to do a thing right.
3: better. What to, what's what's good?
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I feel like those are the things you remember. You, if you do something right all the time, you'll never remember why it, why it worked. <laughs> That's but true. But if you, if it fails, you'll actually remember why it will work the next time. Yeah,
3: no pain, no gain. <laughs>
4: yeah, It's oh, very, very gym life, very paleo. Yeah, <laughs> <You trust> it.
3: <laughs> oh, so I know you wrote that your parents weren't exactly thrilled when you left your career in science to do to pursue more food stuff. How do they feel now with your first book coming out and it's ex- a very exciting time for you?
4: I think um, they, they kind of like jumped on the bandwagon eventually. Uh-huh. And they've been re- really excited and proud. Like my mom, so the book um, is, isn't available for pre-order right now in India. And so my mom like messages me every week. Did oh. you know it's not yet up? Did you know it's <laughs> not yet up? And then when I got my first advanced copies, I sent her one. And she's so cute. She's been taking the book everywhere with her, Aww. even to family and rules. which I thought was very disturbing. But she said, no, everyone's there. That's like the best time to get together. Everybody wants to see the book. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. Um, and she said, like, yeah, everyone's in town. And then they all love the book and they see it. And so it's a great way. And I said, OK, you do what you got to do. <laughs>
3: That's wonderful. I just love the idea of so many people crowded around one book, too, and just, like, flipping through the pages. I love that.
4: Yeah, and then she told me that my dad made her wrap the book in bubble wrap because he's scared that she's taking it everywhere.
3: (laughs) Maybe we could get her a new copy if it it does get dog-eared.
4: I'll I'll see her in December, so I'll get her some, yeah.
3: Awesome. Well, Nick, we in New York, we will be seeing you this week coming up at 92nd Street Y and at yep. MOFAD, Museum of Food yeah. and Drink. Yeah, so I'm
2: excited.
3: So, everyone, hopefully, check out um, Season, the book, but also a brown table where you can see events, I'm sure. And uh, you could follow yep, a brown are. table yep. on Twitter, Instagram to find out and see what's happening in your city for this book. So it looks like that's about all the time we have, but uh, thank you so much, Nick, for taking the time and chatting about thank your you exciting
2: for having me. Yeah.
3: And uh, all right, well, thanks everyone at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you.